Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us this morning by the power of your spirit. Help us to be attentive and speak to us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, if you've just closed your Bibles or you didn't open them, would you find one and open it? Uh, Page 785. Um, And just while you're looking up that uh, passage, our gospel passage on page 785, um, in case you missed uh, the article I wrote in a sent or what I put in an email a week or two ago uh, about this, we've purchased these new Pew Bibles. Today's the first day they're in your pews. They should be on in the seats there or in the... uh, the pockets, um, and it's in an effort to help us to become more familiar with handling the scriptures. You know, one of the unintended consequences of making it oh so convenient for us, having the text written in the bulletins, was that we could come to church each week and never once open the Bible. Or worse, there may be some who can go for weeks at a time with ever once opening their Bibles. So we want to help you. Um, So we're going to get uh, used to opening our Bibles. And so to be very practical about it, uh, that's what we're doing on Sundays. We're going to try this through Lent in terms of not printing the text, and we'll see how that goes, um, whether we keep that going after that or not. And, And when it comes to the scriptures being read, you know, some of you may prefer to listen to them being read, and that's good. That's great. Uh, Or if you want to, you can follow along. But the preacher may direct you to look at the scriptures. So I'm directing you. Good. Matthew 4, verse 1, and the first word, then. So we have to stop right there, I'm afraid, because uh, clearly this passage is building on something that's gone before. Which is what? Well, you can see it right there in the verses before, at the end of the preceding chapter. Jesus had been baptized by John in the River Jordan. And what had happened was that the Spirit of God had descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven, the previous verse there, said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then... Our passage begins. That same Spirit of God did something. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. Why would he do that, do you suppose? Well, if we read on, Jesus was led uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But why on earth would the Holy Spirit lead someone, anyone, let alone Jesus, into temptation? Well, actually, that's not what the text says. The Spirit of God does not lead Jesus into temptation. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness. But I'll concede it's not altogether easy, for the text does say that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The truth is, God is perfectly at liberty to lead us not just into great joy and happiness and fruitfulness and fulfillment, but also to dark places where we may have to confront things or people we'd really rather not. He is free to lead us even into confrontation with the devil. But we need to pause again for a second over that word tempted. It's a 
translation, of course, of a Greek word, which actually means tested. Indeed, 34 out of the 36 times we find this word in the New Testament, and every time in the Gospels, it is always used to mean tested. So the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Part of that testing, as we shall see, was, of course, to come face to face with those very real temptations to sin. Now, you might think, well, this is a distinction without a difference, but it's not. First, we know from the Bible that God never tempts anyone to do evil. And secondly, and rather to our discomfort, I suspect, God does test us. And Lent can be such a time. There are lots of ways that we can think about these 40 days of Lent. And by the way, if you're wondering how it adds up to 40 from now until uh, April the 24th, uh, which is Easter Day, it's because you don't count Sundays. If you don't count Sundays, you get 40 days. Um, but one of, the, one of the things we can do is to think of these days as times for us of testing. Now, I never have really liked tests. I never liked them at school. I never much cared for them at university. And I care even less for them in real life. Not that the other places aren't real life, but you know what I mean. Um, well, for Jesus... Immediately following his baptism, immediately following this voice from God the Father saying, Well done, my beloved. He immediately faced a testing of whether or not he would believe that. Whether or not he would live into that. Whether or not he would be obedient to his heavenly Father. And to the ministry that in his baptism and with the Spirit coming on him, he had been commissioned to do. And likewise for us, our lives very often include times of testing. And when they do, the same question presents itself to us. Will we be faithful to our baptismal callings to love God and to serve others? Well, in preparation for the temptations that were to come Jesus' way... Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Only then, when he was famished, did the test of those temptations come. Now, before we look at the temptations themselves, I want to say a quick word about fasting. Someone said to me the other day, I think fasting works really well for some people, but, you know, for others it doesn't. Well, I I think that's a bit of a cop-out. Fasting isn't just a good idea if you think it works for you. That's a bit like saying healthy eating and exercise is great if that works for you. When in truth, my doctor tells me that uh, healthy eating and exercise is good for you, plain and simple, whether I like it or not, and whether I think it works for me or not. Now, am I saying that fasting is like healthy eating and uh, uh, exercise? Well, it probably is, but that's not my point. So why then should we fast? Well, let me give you three kind of quick and easy reasons. First, Jesus did it. Second, Jesus expected his disciples to do it. In fact, if you flip over the page, seeing as you have your Bibles, uh, you'll see Matthew 6, verse 16. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, And whenever you fast, 
Do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, notice, not if, but when, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is one way that we can be serious about seeking first the kingdom of God. His will, his righteousness, his ways, first and foremost and above everything else. Rather than forever chasing after everything that gratifies us, our ways, our will, our own ends. So, third, the discipline of fasting. So the first was Jesus did it. The second was he expects us to do it. Third, I am absolutely convinced that fasting is indeed good for us and helpful and something for for which God actually rewards us. Now, we probably have a hard time with that, and yet there's nothing wrong with doing things that produce an appropriate reward. That's how things are. Now, whether it's fasting from food or fasting from Facebook or fasting from whatever it is that you may fast from, it's good for us because when we deny ourselves, we tend to end up in a better place to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus said that, you remember. Anyone who will come after me will deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And one specific way that I think fasting is good for us is that when we fast, we are engaging in a kind of training exercise, a training in resisting temptation. Now, it's relatively easy for me to resist the temptation to eat if I fast for a day. I mean, it's, it's there, it's real, and sure, I get hungry and I want to eat, but when I resist that temptation, it strengthens me when I face other temptations, temptations that may be much harder. So, let's get back to our text, chapter 4, verse 3. The tempter came. What an appropriate name for the devil. Concise and to the point. And actually, sorry, I'm going to have to pause again before I continue. We will will get through this passage. Um, What are we to make of the tempter, the devil? I mean, are we, are we really to believe this kind of literally, that the devil appeared to Jesus? Well, I do. I, I uh, have to say I have no problem with believing that the devil is real. Now, I'm sure in many quarters today, the idea of a devil is probably laughed at. But there's nothing particularly new or sophisticated about those who dismiss the devil's existence. But we do so at our peril. You know, in uh, pre-war Germany, the theologically progressive wing of the church had pretty much dismissed, dismissed notions of the devil and the demonic as being just myths. Only then, of course, to experience the forces of Nazism, about which it's pretty difficult to avoid words like evil and demonic. 
But that said, we should not go to the other extreme of so blaming the devil for everything to the point that we excuse ourselves of any moral culpability. Of course, that was what Eve tried to do after she ate of the forbidden fruit. It wasn't my fault. The serpent made me do it. No. Well, yes, but no, that's not good enough. God made us with free will. And while the devil may tempt us, while the devil will tempt us, the devil is not all-powerful to make us do anything. And sadly, we are all too willing and ready to be complicit in reaching for forbidden fruit. Well, whatever you think of the devil, he's real, he's dangerous, and he's very present, seeking to harm us. And so the tempter comes to Jesus, ready to do his worst, to tempt and seduce and trick, and most especially to spoil relationships. That's one of his specialties. And most prized of all is his delight in tearing apart our relationship with God. Well, Jesus is hungry after 40 days of fasting. And while he is feeling weak, famished, it says, the tempter approached him. You know, the devil is not always very subtle. But you don't need to be subtle in order to be effective. Jesus is famished. And so the devil says, hey, fancy a nice loaf of fresh baked bread? Can't you just, you know, smell it, see it, touch it, taste it? Mm, Actually, you know, you could uh, change one or two of these stones into uh, some nice warm rolls. If, of course, you uh, really are the son of God. How about it? Don't you hate him? I mean, I do. I hate the devil. He is low down and rotten to the core. It's bad enough to be tempting Jesus with bread when he's so hungry. But why does he have to throw in this seed of doubt on top of it if you are the son of God? Actually, he does that every time. It's one of his favorite devices. Because, you see, if God's words are in doubt, then we come unstuck. Like we saw with the devil in the Garden of Eden. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, of course he didn't. That isn't what God said. What what God said was that they could eat of every tree in the garden except for one. And here for Jesus. If his baptism that had just preceded this didn't really make any difference, then... Maybe Jesus isn't really God's son. I mean, after all, what is the son of God doing feeling hungry at all? What's the son of God doing in a human body? What's the son of God doing out in the wilderness? Can you imagine what may have been going through Jesus' head? You know, yes, he was the son of God. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. Nowadays, you know, I think doubt is often taught as being a great virtue. And I think there's, there's something good about that. I mean, it's not wrong to doubt things and to test things. I think there's something that's appropriate about that in many contexts, in the sciences, in the arts, in any kind of learning. But I think that doubt, when it comes to God 
And when it comes to the real truth about ourselves, is far from appropriate or, or ultimately helpful. I mean, you may have them, but then we, we can address them and work through them. You see, I, I think that many people are faced with the kind of things that are going on in this first temptation all the time. I mean, are you really a daughter of God as declared at your baptism? I mean, if you are, why are you feeling so down? Why do you still sin? Why are you such a loser? Why are you so pathetic? I wonder, have any of you ever heard those tapes playing? If you have, or when they do, please recognize them for what they are. A lie. A way that the devil torments us with these voices of doubt about who we are in Christ. So what then should we do with doubts when they come about who we are in Christ? Well, one thing that we can do um, is what Jesus did. That's always a, a, a good thing to do. And, you know, each time that Jesus was tempted, he drew from the scriptures. Verse 4. But he answered, it is written. And he's referring to the Bible. Four times you'll see those words, it is written. Three times coming from Jesus and once coming from the devil, who's clever. And we'll look at that in a minute. But Jesus takes up the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and he uses it as a weapon to ward off the enemy's attack. Again, one of the reasons we've got Bibles in your hands is we want you to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. Well, actually, don't mark these ones. You, you can read, learn, and inwardly digest. But you can bring your own Bibles and mark those. Actually, there's a Lenten discipline. Bring your Bible to church every week. Um, there aren't enough of these for everyone to look at them, so that would be great. Okay. Jesus had huge confidence in the scriptures. And so to combat this first temptation, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, he says, verse 4, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The hunger that exists in Pittsburgh today is massive. Now for most people it's not physical hunger but a spiritual hunger, a hunger for meaning, a hunger for identity, a hunger for love. And this hunger of the soul, whether people recognize it as such or not, is a hunger for God and a hunger for God's word. Jesus, in his life and ministry, was constantly feeding on the word of God. If he did that... How much more do we need to do likewise? So, having taken advantage of Jesus' weakness in that first temptation, the devil in the second temptation changes his tactics. And this time, he attacks Jesus where Jesus is strong. Jesus was very strong in his knowledge of and faith and trust in God's word. So, the devil thinks, okay, I'll go there then. And so he takes that strength and tries to twist it. And so the devil plays the Bible card. 
after taking him, presumably in some sort of vision, to the top of the temple, he tempts Jesus to a bit of showmanship, to prove for all to see who he is. Now, I, you know, I used to read this and think, well, yeah, that's probably not that tempting, is it? I mean, why is that tempting? When, you know, because Jesus is God. And Except all I can say is, yeah, how do you think we know about this story? I mean, how do we know about it? How did Matthew write it down? Presumably, I mean, certainly, surely, Jesus must have relayed to the disciples what went on in his time in the wilderness. This really is coming from Jesus. And I think, hard though it is sometimes to grapple with, these things were tempting. Jesus was tempted by this, but he didn't fall. But it's not just this, because it must have been terribly frustrating when you think about how everybody treated him. That Wouldn't it be, you know, maybe I would. Yeah, I'm going to show them who I am. But here the devil's cleverer because he uses scripture. So the devil starts to say, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up and you will not dash your foot against the stone. He, he's not mistranslating or misquoting. That's there in the Bible. And the devil uses it. Commentator Frederick Dale Bruner, who I'm drawing on a lot from this morning, writes this. Jesus is taken to the holy city placed on top of the holy temple, and is read the holy scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. Where the first temptation smelled like a bakery, the second has the aroma of an orthodox liturgy. The devil in the first temptation tried to reach Jesus through his weak spot, his hungry stomach. He now tries to reach Jesus through his strong spot, his faith in the word, God's word by which faith Jesus had just dealt with the first temptation. If the evil one cannot make us carnal, because um, perhaps he can make us fanatical. Okay? So instead of being carnal with the things that we're kind of craving, then he's going to make us complete fanatics. If he can't make us super secular by seeking wonder bread, perhaps he can make us super spiritual by suggesting leaps of faith. Here's the thing. I think Bruno's onto something here, especially for smart people like you, us. You see, we may be more on our guard against temptation in those areas where we are weak because we figured out where we usually get tempted and where, you know, what our issues are. But sometimes we can actually be more vulnerable where we think we're strong. Because we don't see our strengths as presenting any problems. Yet we can so easily fall into temptation and sin by presuming on our strengths. By thinking we don't need God's help. By relying on our own intellect or experience or ability. Rather than on God. I mean, let me give you an example. If you're terrified at public speaking, then you know that that's one of your weaknesses, perhaps. And so you're going to, and you've got to go and speak somewhere. Then in absolute fear and trembling, you're going to be praying hard and working hard and trusting God to help you. But if you love public speaking and it's a piece of cake and you kind of delight in it, well, actually, you're more vulnerable to start spouting your own nonsense and not really paying attention, particularly if you're a preacher, uh, than what God might want you to say. 
In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes, If you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. Okay, so the tempter says to Jesus, it is written. And so he uses the scriptures to try and get at Jesus. He doesn't play fair. That's the point. And he is at work, not only out there somewhere in the world praying on the weak, but he also works kind of in here, in our midst. And he even dares to use scripture to trap us, to make us feel oh so self-righteous, oh so holy, oh so judgmental. But thankfully, Jesus' knowledge of and his love and his kind of being steeped in the scriptures enables him not to get tricked. You know, nowhere are we taught to try and manipulate God, to force him to do something to prove himself to us. Whereas Satan uses scripture to try and get Jesus to do a stunt to get God's attention, Jesus uses scripture to demonstrate the need for us to be in reverence and humility before a holy God. You know, there's a huge difference between testing God and trusting God. The devil would have you do the former. God wants us to do the latter. Well, failing to trap Jesus a second time, the devil then makes his third attempt. This time, verse 8, taking Jesus to a very high mountain from where he can see all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So, first the devil tries to get Jesus in his weakness, then he tries his physical hunger, then he tries to get him, trap him in his strength, his love of the scriptures, and here he makes a different play. Now he is being quite subtle. You see, we know how much Jesus loves the world, we know how much God the Father loves the world. Indeed, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus' whole life and mission, his vocation, his ministry was all about his love for the world. That was why he came. And so the devil tries to twist it and subvert it. In this third temptation, we see the devil at his most devious. All Jesus has to do is fall down and worship Satan. Now that might sound Horrendous, which of course it is, but the verb tense here actually implies that it's a single act, a one-time deal. The promise is phenomenal. Do this one easy thing, and after all, I mean, nobody around, right? Just, just kind of bow down, do this thing, and the world which Jesus loves so much will be his. Wouldn't that be a whole lot easier than winning the world from the grip of Satan by going to the cross? Here, Jesus was being tempted, I think, with a shortcut. But Jesus' love for the world did not justify anything. The ends did not justify the means. The means of glory, the means of winning the world, was the way of the cross, not bowing down to the devil. Finally, thank goodness, the devil left him. And suddenly angels come and wait on him, not in response to Jesus throwing himself off a tower, but in response to his faithfulness and obedience. Now, of course, this is not the only time that Jesus was tempted. 
Uh, We see glimpses of temptation throughout his earthly life and ministry. And we'll encounter the severest test at the end of our pilgrimage through Lent when we encounter Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in the meantime, as we are just beginning our own Lenten journeys, I hope that through this window into Jesus' time in the wilderness, we will be encouraged and challenged to draw on the scriptures as a source of strength and power as we are tested and as we will face temptation. But let me leave you with some words of St. Paul. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. So help us, God. Amen.